On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about politicians and severance and pensions and all the fun stuff that those who were voted out of office in the federal election are going to get. Money from you. How much money? And why are they getting so much money? We're going to talk about that one. We're also talking about a really cool exhibition at the Art Gallery of Hamilton that puts you to work. You are involved. This is not just walking around staring at paintings and going, hmm, I think I understand that, even though you don't. This is you being involved. We'll tell you what it's about. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. If we go back to when COVID first really got going and we were right in the thick of it, you will recall the phrase that we kept hearing all the time from those who were in positions of power. Remember what that phrase was? We're all in this together. We're all in this together. That was the, what we kept hearing. Well, I don't want to talk about COVID right now, but that phrase, I want to go to that phrase because it applies elsewhere as well. And because it was so commonly uttered by politicians, I want to apply it somewhere else. After this federal election, 51 politicians lost their seat. Now, many of those are now entitled to a very generous, very generous pension. But what might be really surprising to a lot of you is that those who lost in a democratic election where they chose to go to run or not run, they are also eligible for a very generous severance. So you, the taxpayer, decided this person, that person was not the one you wanted representing you, but now your money is going to be spent to send them away. It is a, um, it's an interesting one. I want to bring in Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Franco, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate your time. I'm beyond. Uh, I want to get to both of these things, but let, let's start with the severance idea for a second, because I understand and wholeheartedly support the idea of severance for people who lose their jobs due to downsizing or whatever else. But should a politician whose job is by definition a contract position, they're, they're, they're hired for four years at a time, or in this case, two years at a time, should they be getting healthy payouts if they're not reelected? No, they shouldn't be getting these severance checks. Uh, I mean, I, I think you already kind of brought up a good point, but we also have to remember the context of what's going on right now, right? We, we have seen millions of Canadians struggle through COVID-19. We've seen the private sector in many instances absolutely devastated with so many people who've lost their job, who've taken pay cuts, who've seen their businesses closed down before their eyes. And we also have to remember the context of the fact that the government's finances are in the hole. The federal government is more than a trillion dollars in debt right now. So certainly we should be seeing our politicians reform their pay, their benefits, including uh, scrapping the severance checks. Now, let me just bring up one eye-popping statistic regarding the severances. There are 10 former members of parliament who served for less than two years who will still pocket nearly $93,000 or more in severance which is absolutely mind-boggling. And again, I go back to the question, the, the, the thing, I, if it's a normal job, I'm all for it because that's you weren't necessarily expecting that you were going to lose your job. You couldn't have banked on that. You couldn't have expected it. If you're a politician, do you not have to at least have it in your planning that every four well, years, this is something you may you should be ready that it could happen? You would think so, right? You, you know that an election is upcoming, uh, so you know that you could be fired from your boss, who is the taxpayers, or in other instances where politicians just step down, which is their own decision. 
So, so I think I agree with that point that you brought up there. And, and we also just have to remember that these severance checks, uh, they, they really go out in one or of, of two instances. The first is either that they are the MP is not old enough to receive the pension, so they are under the age of 55, or the second instance where they haven't served for six years. And that brings us back to the point where, where we see 10 former members of parliament uh, who, su- who serve for less than two years who are going to be pocketing more than $92,000 through this severance check. And, you know, just in case people have forgotten, the people who, I'm not even talking about cabinet ministers, backbenchers, those who you know, represent us, and I'm not dismissing the the relevance or the importance of our political system, not at all, but those people who are backbenchers are making 185000 almost $186,000 a year. That seems pretty generous already without having to offer all these extra perks. Oh, that is such a great point. They are very, uh, very generously paid, of course, coming from taxpayers' pockets one way or another. But you know what I think we have to remember? is what happened during the pandemic. We saw all members of Parliament pocket not one, but two pay raises while millions of Canadians struggled through COVID-19. And those pay raises uh, range from an extra $6,900 for your backbench member of Parliament, all the way up to $13,800 for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Yeah, it's it, it doesn't seem to be... It doesn't seem to be mirroring what's going on in the rest of the world, but that seems to be something that happens in the public sector a lot. One of the things we often hear is, if you don't pay this much, you're not going to attract good candidates. you you got to be able to make it lucrative and enticing for good people to leave whatever they're doing to run for politics. Do, you, do, do we really believe that if a backbencher made, say, 100000 instead of almost 200000 that most of them wouldn't run for office? Yeah, I certainly think the pendulum is swung too far in the direction that is just unaffordable for taxpayers. And, and you know, before the break, we talked about the two pay raises that they received during this pandemic. And I think certainly uh, we can all agree that there is no way that our representatives in Ottawa should have been pocketing not one but two pay raises while so many Canadians really struggled through this pandemic, especially financially. And before the break, you mentioned that, you know, this isn't what we saw around the world. And I just want to bring up a very uh, crucial example. Almost when, co- almost immediately when COVID-19 hit, we saw New Zealand's prime minister, ministers and top bureaucrats come together and announce that they would take a 20% pay cut to show solidarity with struggling taxpayers. And that's something that we should have seen here in Canada. And, you know, there's just one point that I need to make. I mean, it's called the House of Commons really for a reason, and that's that our representatives are supposed to be able to represent the people. And it's very difficult, I would argue impossible, for our representatives to truly make decisions in a representative way when they're completely divorced from financial reality facing the people that they're supposed to be there representing. Right. And look, uh, no one is suggesting, certainly I'm not, I don't think you are suggesting that if they had taken a pay cut of 20% or 10%, that that was going to do much, if anything, to resolve the debt or deficit. It was a symbol. It could have been a symbol of solidarity as opposed to giving two raises to themselves, which kind of looks like let them eat cake almost. Like we, you know, we're, we're, we're so high above that we don't have to concern ourselves with these little things. But okay, on top of all this, There are a bunch of the politicians who got voted out who have been in office for at least six years, which qualifies them now for pensions. And 
I don't know. I, I mean, for the people who are listening right now, if if you're lucky enough to have had a pension, you probably worked at your business for 25, 26, 30 years and maybe got $30,000 a year, 35 if you're lucky, some will be more. If you've been a, a member of parliament for six years, you get a pension that starts at $32,000. Six years. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's again, we have to come back to the point that it's just completely divorced from financial reality. Uh, you, you made a good a caveat there was if you're lucky to have a workplace pension, because the, the truth of the matter is the vast majority of Canadians who work outside of government do not have a workplace pension, we have to, you know, take a little bit of the paycheck that we come in and, and put it aside either for a rainy day or to, or to fund our golden years. But these politicians, I mean, there's 16 former MPs who, who were just retired or defeated who are going to collect more than a million dollars, more than one million dollars in pension income if they continue to collect that pension until the age of 90. Now, it gets even more eye-watering because there are four former MPs who will be taking home um, more than $100,000 per year in pension income. And, and, you know, there's even one member of parliament, uh, Jeff Regan, I should say former MP, uh, who could be collecting more than $5 million in pension income if he continues to collect that pension to the age of 90. And again, to be clear, I have no objection. I have, I, I, I believe in the idea of a pension, even though not everyone has one. And if you have been a member of parliament for 20 years, I have no objection to you having a comfortable, healthy pension. I'm not even going to gripe about it being higher than the average person's. That's not the issue. It's the idea of you've been there for six years. And, and the suggestion almost is, Franco, that if you've worked as a politician for six years, somehow getting a job after this is going to be harder. We have to look after you because you may not find work after. I, I would argue that if you can put on your resume that you've been in the House of Commons, your chance of getting a job is way better than most people. Oh, for sure. I mean, think about all the times you hear someone going to a new consulting firm. Uh -huh. Right or, or or VP government relations or, or things of that nature. So so I don't think that argument really passes the sniff test at all. And look, I think there are ways, and I know there are ways to to reform these pensions and pay that are that are still fair for politicians, but that are way more affordable for taxpayers. Right? One transition would just be to remove politicians from this defined benefit style pension, which is um, very very scarce in the private sector, and, and move them more towards a a matching. RRSP style pension, right, where they put in a little bit of money for the years that they work, and there is some type of matching contribution for those years that they work. When we talk about severance, we need to axe these severance payments. It's completely unfair for taxpayers. And when we're talking about pay, I think step number one is just reversing those pandemic pay raises. Yeah, and all of this stuff, as I said a moment ago, none of this, none of these trims or cuts or axes are going to fix our debt or our deficit. But I think it, I think this is illustrative of how people in government, too many people, not all, too many people in government see public money. And that's why our debt is what it is. That's why our deficit is what it is. There's always lots more that we can take from the taxpayer to cover these costs as opposed to hey, let's see if we can save some money for the taxpayer somewhere along here. It's it's not, in the grand scheme of things, a huge amount of money, but it's very symbolic. Oh, it is. And, and we certainly need a culture change 
in Ottawa, right? We, we need politicians to understand that it's not their money that they're spending and that many Canadians have gone through a very difficult time. But I'll add one more thing, and, and, and here's where you can really save a significant amount of money. Uh, you need to see leadership of the, at the top because that gives those politicians the, the, the moral authority to go to the department heads, go to the bureaucracy, and ask them to look for savings. And that's really where the savings are going to be found, and even uh, to, to get us closer to a balanced budget. Now, let me just give you a quick example. Not only did our MPs pocket two pay raises during the pandemic, but we got our hands on exclusive documents from the government that show that more than 300,000 federal government employees received at least one pay raise during this pandemic. So so that is really where the dollars and cents to begin begin to add up for taxpayers. So without politicians showing leadership, it's going to be very difficult for them to go ask their department heads, their bureaucracy to find some savings. I don't want we got to run and I don't want to be too too cynical, but whatever happened, we call that we call people who work in government, politicians and others public servants. I'm finding it more and more difficult to refer to anybody as a public servant when the servant is making considerably more than the master who supposedly is the boss. Oh, I know. It feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, while, while yours and, and your family struggled through COVID-19, uh, you see the, your supposed representatives in Ottawa getting pay raise, get, getting these lucrative types of benefits, and also just the massive bureaucracy continuing to collect higher and higher paychecks. I mean, especially the pandemic pay raises to me, to taxpayers, I think it really feels like a slap in the face. Franco Terrazano, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I'm not, I don't hate politicians for the record. There are some very, very good politicians. There are some great politicians. There are some politicians who do everything for the right reason because they truly want to make things better. And I think this kind of stuff just makes it look bad. And, and some of this stuff would be so easy for a bunch of them to get together and say, you know, for image, for leadership, for showing that we are all in this together, all these things, you know, we're at the point where surely there could be some leadership here just to symbolically lead, symbolically lead. I'm waiting to see when that person will arrive, but we could sure use it. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. There is an exhibition that's going on right now. It's just started. It's about the work of Tom Thompson at the art gallery of Hamilton. Now, I don't want to be patronizing, so forgive me. I'm sure most people already know this, but Tom Thompson was an early member of the Group of Seven, died mysteriously. He, he he's sort of he's considered part of the Group of Seven, but it's there's it's a little more complicated. That's not really the issue, though. It's a, it's an exhibit of Tom Thompson's art, but there's a twist to this one because while it's an exhibition of his work, it's also kind of a mystery game. It's it's far more participatory than you would get at most collections when you go to the art gallery. I want to bring in Toby Bruce. She's the senior curator at the Art Gallery of Hamilton. Toby, how are you today? Great. How are you, Scott? I'm fantastic. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking. So let me, um, if I understand this correctly, and and please re-explain it if I get it wrong, you have a number of pieces of Tom Thompson's work and one that may or may not be a fake. And so people who come have to study and learn from the real ones 
to get the clues to determine if the mystery painting is real or not? Am I pretty close? Yeah, you're very close. But in fact, there are two that are questionable. Oh. So, yeah. So we've got about 30 paintings and sketches by Thompson, which is may not sound like a lot, but when you're talking about someone of Thompson's caliber um, and rarity, because he didn't, he had a very short career, that's actually quite a sizable grouping. And we have two panels. One is from a collector in this region, and the other is from a collector in the Kingston region. And together with the Agnes Etherington Art Centre, which is located at Queen's University in Kingston, um, we've co-produced this exhibition. So I had a collector come to me about six years ago with this panel, which had a small little TT etched into the corner. And about six months later, I was in Kingston and uh, with my colleague Alicia, who's the co-curator of the exhibition. And she said, I've got a collector who's coming in and has a painting signed TT. Will you look at it with me? And I said, sure, that's so funny. I just had a collector, same thing. And then we got to talking and we thought, wouldn't it be fascinating to take these two questionable works, put them and embed them in a larger exhibition of known real Thompsons and not say yes or no, we think they are or they're not, but just take the the viewer, the visitor through the different areas of investigation. So we've organized the exhibition into these themes that we look at when we when we're presented with a work and we have to say whether or not it is or isn't by that artist. Oh, okay. And so and so those different themes, which would sort of be the things you would look at to study a Tom Thompson to decide, or any other artist, I guess, to decide how yeah. they paint and everything else. So what would what would be those areas of what are people if they come, what would they be looking What's for? How would you determine sure. if it's real or not? Okay. So we, we broke it down into five themes or, or areas of investigation. <clears throat> the first one is signature. How did the artist sign? So in the case of the two panels in question, we've got them signed TT. So the first question you ask is, did Thompson ever sign his work TT? Did he ever use just a T? Did he, you know, did he sign it just Thompson or did he sign it Tom Thompson? So you have to look at the whole history of what he's produced. And actually there's an amazing resource for anyone who's interested. There's an amazing resource online um, that anyone can access. You just Google Tom Thompson and then what's called a catalog resume. And what that is, is it's a, it's, it's a tracking system for all the works that we know Thompson produced. And there's images of it. You can look at his signatures. So, so signature, and also is one, you know, it's the first thing often when we're looking at a painting, we look at something and then we look down in the corner, one of the corners to see, oh, who painted this if it doesn't have a label. Um, but the, the complicating thing with Thompson was, A, he didn't sign a lot. So a lot of the paintings are not signed. And then when he died um, in 1917, prematurely, there was a big body of work that was left behind in his studio. And so there were these stamps created by his fellow artist, J.H. McDonald, who would become a member of the Group of Seven. And both those stamps are in the show. So those were used to authenticate. So there's a rubber stamp for the back, a die-cut stamp for the front, that, was, that were used to say, okay, you know what? We know they went right into the studio and they said everything here is by Thompson so that there'd be no mistaking you know, when things started getting into other people's hands. So signatures are first. We look at style. So we look at how an artist painted. How did Thompson paint water? How did he paint trees? How did he paint the sky? Um, and that's where something, it's not a word I really like to use, but something that, you know, has kind of been historically associated with this kind of work. We call it connoisseurship. So someone who's really looked at a, at a body of work by an artist over a long period of time, you develop an eye. 
and you can kind of see things that that look familiar to you or that might you know raise raise a red flag. Okay, so signature um, and style. Okay, signature and style. Then we've got um, subject matter. So where's mm-hmm. what you know? What's he? What what is? Was he ever in this location? So you know, Algonquin Park, super popular area for him to be. Yep. That's where he produced the bulk of his work. And so um, subject matter is really important. Um, and then materials. So what materials did he use? What kind of paints did he use? And we worked with the Canadian Conservation Institute um, for that section. And then finally, provenance, which is history of ownership. So who owned the painting and when? And sometimes that's your, that's your, you know, um, your most uh, airtight case. That if you know the artist gave it to someone or sold it to someone and there's documentation and then it land was given, you know, descended down through an estate to someone else, often that, if it's unsigned, there's no markings, um, that can be a really good way to tell whether or not it is an authentic concept. With all of this, I mean, there are certain things that require a consistency, a continuity. Uh, You're talking about style and you're talking about the way they sign. Do artists all have a tell? Or, or like some method that is consistent from work to work, or do some mix up their techniques and do things different? And all of a sudden, you go, I, I, I just don't. I have no way of knowing because every painting they do is completely different. Yeah, that's a really good question. And the answer is yes. I mean, artists' practice evolves, so it's really rare to find any artist who works in exactly the same style for the entirety of their. If we're speaking about a painter for the entirety of their painting career, and so that's why it's not a science. And that's why it's such a fascinating exercise because, you know, the question of, let's say, signature, and we had these two TT paintings. What if we, what, what if there were no other paintings that were signed, were signed TT? Is it a closed case? No, because we know that there are certain, you know, there's one painting that has a little T in a box. It's the only known painting that we know where he signed T in a box, but he did it. We know it's his. So we can't be categorical. It's really about building up a body of evidence, but also being really attuned to the fact that artists are going to shift their style over time. They're going to change their palettes, the colors that they use. They're going to move maybe from being a representational painter. Someone like Lauren Harris started painting like an impressionist and ended up a full abstract painter. So, Well, not just changing, it's not just, it's not just important that they're changing their style. I mean, there is, uh, and I've seen, you know, 60 Minutes did a great piece on a, on a guy who was the, the best at this. I mean, there is huge money in art forgery. I mean, oh, if someone is good absolutely. at doing this and can fool people, there's big yes. money to be made. Absolutely. And that's, you know, and that's what's, what we do have. So you had asked in the beginning, you know, is there, is there a forgery in the show? Well, there are, so there's the two panels that we, that we highlight and we say these are the two that, you know, you be the judge. Then we actually have two works that were co-opted to be works by Thompson in the 1960s. So an artist, his name was Thomas Chatfield, and he painted, he had studied with the group. And he painted, and he was, it was some of his young work he showed in Toronto, and it, it really looked like the work of the group. And the dealer kept some work back when he returned the, the paintings to the artist. And then a couple of years later, made them into sort of quote-unquote fake Thompsons, put labels on the back, made them look aged, put them in collections, put a nameplate on the front, uh, completely unbeknownst to Chatfield. And there was, so there's this big, it was called the art fraud case of the or midnight, or sorry, 1962 to 64 and there was a big court case and um, Sharkey was put behind bars so he deliberately was trying to mislead the public. Chatfield wasn't his works were just used by this by this dealer but then there are people who 
as you say, deliberately want to forge the work of another artist. And there is an example in this exhibition that actually comes from the National Gallery of Canada because they, you know, they knew it was not a Thompson. They brought it into their collection as an imitator of Tom Thompson. And so that was a work that of an artist who was deliberately trying to paint a quote-unquote Tom Thompson and pass it off as such. So, and and um, there are, I mean, there are very, even to the average person who doesn't follow this all that closely, they may, yeah. people may remember from about three or four years ago, there was this huge question about the, the Salvador Mundi, which was supposedly, or is, or maybe a Da Vinci masterpiece yeah, that sold for yeah. 450 million. And best I can recall, they still don't know. They think yeah. maybe, but no one really knows. It, it's really yeah. tough. And it is, you know, and it's, it's difficult. It's really, it, it's a really, um, it's fascinating and it's difficult because, you know, we as institutional curators, so I work at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, and I have to authenticate something if it's coming into our collection. So I have to make sure that I believe, you know, to the best of my ability, that, you know, if a Lauren Harris is being given to us, or Tom Thompson, um, that it is in fact what it purports to be. Um, so that's one thing. But I, but as institutional curators, we don't authenticate works in private collections for liability reasons. And, and so um, while if I, you know, if someone brings me a Thompson and, and signed T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, <laughs> then I can, I can confidently say, you know, no, I don't think you have a Thompson just because there's no P in his last name. Um, but, but otherwise, you know, we really have to say, these are the, these are the, um, this is the evidence and support, but I can't say yay or nay to you. So it really leaves, in some ways, collectors, um, you know, unless they can, unless they can figure out a, a way to kind of have this airtight case, or enough evidence, and enough sort of experts looking, you know, I'm not a Thompson expert by any stretch. Um, and nor would I, you know, be in a position to say whether I think it is or isn't, I may have my own opinions. But, um, but it, it's, it's a fascinating element of the art world, because, um, there's so much money at stake, you know, yeah. going from and, an and also to a, to a Thompson is significant. You know, the, there's a significant, obviously, uh, difference in that value. Well, and Toby also telling someone who believes that they have a group of seven, a Tom Thompson or whatever, they come to you if they did and said, Hey, can you please look at this? Telling them that it's not real would be yeah. not only crushing, but probably would <laughs> bruise their ego. Cause I'm sure they've told all their family and friends <laughs> that they've got this group of seven. That's that would right. be a tough That's... conversation. Oh, absolutely. But you know, there, but there's some really great stories. If you, um, recently there was a, 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 a small sketch, um, which is in the exhibition and which was found in, um, uh, you know, found in a basement in Edmonton. And it was a sketch for a work that is in the National Gallery of Canada collection. And so, you know, I mean, yes, it, there could have been question as to whether or not this is the actual sketch for it, but further research sort of confirmed that, yes, indeed, I think we've now unearthed, you know, an unknown Thompson sketch. Um, and so it was auctioned off and it is believed to be a Thompson. Mm. So at Thompson value. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating, but it's really, it's a really tricky business. Any idea, do we know, and I mean, look, there's millions of artists, but group of seven, do we have any idea how many group of seven authentic paintings there are out there? Oh, there's hundreds. Um, yeah. So, so I, I, I hope it's okay if I correct you because made it yes, made a tiny of course. up front and it's one that everyone makes that Thompson actually wasn't a member of the group of seven 
So he died before the group actually formed officially. So they kind of consider him their, you know, their artistic guides, leader. You know, he was such an extraordinary painter. He was so gifted and he brought so many of them north. So they, you know, he dies in 1917 and the, the, the group doesn't form until 1920. So they sort of looked after in many ways that, you know, his, his legacy and his estate and, and, and worked with the family on that. Um, but with the seven members and then later on, they're even, you know, when you get later in, in the decades, there are even more artists that come from, from the West. Um, there are, you know, thousands of painting of known paintings. But what's interesting is that we know because of this art fraud case in 1962 to four, that by the 60s, the, you know, Canadian art's being copied. And it's still a pretty young field, you know, mm. Canadian painting. I mean, it sounds, you know, 1960 sounds like, you know, so long ago, but really Canadian artists who were painting in a new way in this country and not just sort of taking what was happening in Europe and, and adapting it to a Canadian context. Um, the fact that there were artists copying or, or, or there was interest enough to, uh, on the part of dealers um, to be copying the work of Tom Thompson says a lot about where Canadian art was in the mid 20th century. So we got to run, but just it, when people go and they see this, uh, this collection, it's called, by the way, Tom Thompson, the art of authentication. If they go as they walk out the door, yeah. Do you tell people if in the mm -hmm. end, if you do or don't believe it's authentic or do they leave never really knowing? We do not. We, we have no, we're completely neutral. So they, they're going to leave. They will leave with their own, with their own opinion of what they think. Because you're, we, we, sorry, you're neutral because you don't have an opinion or because you just don't want to tell them. Oh, we don't want to tell them. Okay. So you do, nor, you have an opinion. You personally have an opinion whether it's real or not. Um, I don't, I, do I have an opinion? I have, I'm still looking to be perfectly honest. And now that we actually have these sketches embedded, I finally have an opportunity because we borrowed from all over the place. We borrowed from the National Gallery, we borrowed from McMichael, we borrowed from the Art Gallery of Ontario, um, from Riverbrink Museum London. So those works, we haven't seen the questionable works right up beside those works. So, and we just installed the exhibition, finished installing it on Friday. So I actually want to spend some time over the course of the next three months myself, really looking at these two works so that I can kind of come up with my own personal opinion. It is, uh, again, it's called Tom Thompson, The Art of Authentication. It's on now. It runs through January 2nd of 2022. And if you want to... Take part in the mystery and see if you can figure it out yourself. And I mean, who knows? Maybe if you truly believe it, the person will sell it to you for whatever amount. Now they won't do that. But nonetheless, <laughs> it is a fun game to play. Uh, Toby Bruce, curator at the Art Gallery of Hamilton. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate uh, it. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.